Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. I am John Manuel. I'm joined this week again by J.J. Cooper. And we're coming to you live from the Baseball America DeMarini Demo House podcast nook, which is very exciting. Proud to have DeMarini Demo House as our sponsor. And when it comes to buying a baseball bat, DeMarini just changed the game, introducing Demo House, where you can step into the cage and hit the latest from DeMarini before you buy, because there's no substitute for hitting a real baseball or talking to people who know both bats and batting. Your demo time in the cage is free, so get the season started right. Visit your nearest demo house today. Locations and full details can be found at demarini.com backslash demo house. And, J.J., I know that would have been a great idea. My son's a little older. looking forward to getting him. I did get him his first bat, but it was a little discounted. I'll put it that way uh, for Christmas. And when he gets a little bit older and actually swings it around a little bit, after I get him on his long toss program, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, first. But long tossing is key for That's you, first for Alex. Alex will be first on his long toss program, then we'll get him in the cage. I'm hoping that he'll be a nice Natalie's situational a lefty. Away. She just turned two, so uh, <laughs> yeah, she, so, she Sophia, would use it as a, you know, clubbing uh, the dog with it or something. <laughs> Sophia like. actually got her first uh, pink glove for Christmas. Hey. So, so Merry Christmas. Happy holidays to everybody uh, listening in. And our first podcast of 2010 uh, here in the Demo House podcast nook. And J.J., uh, a fairly uneventful uh, holiday season for Major League Baseball, but then this week, uh, you know, everyone's so back at work. kind of thought out a little bit and uh, started making moves again. Yeah, we have Adrian Beltre signing in Boston. We have Matt Holiday signing back in uh, in St. Louis for a lot of money. Shock, shocking! That was one of those like negotiate. Okay, how much are you going to negotiate against yourself? Because Seemed that way. Seemed that way. Jason Bay signing in uh, in New York. So yeah, the, the, negotiate with yourself. That's I mean, right. That's right. That no. was really one was like, no, I want more money. Really? Oh, well, we're the only team that's offering you money. The, and and the Mets will. We'll wait. We'll keep bidding against ourselves, but we'll wait. And they let's see if they bid against themselves for Benji Molina now, as they've been rumored to do. But with the, the Red Sox are involved in a lot of moves this first week of January, with also the rumor of this uh, possible trade with them and the Mariners, which I'm sure will you know, be out by the time people download this with the Casey Kochman uh, moving on, Mike Lowell, a trade that never happened, that hasn't happened yet. So uh, it's natural, I think, also to talk about all these Red Sox moves and to go into our American League East top ten prospect issue, uh, fronted by Brian Mattis and the Orioles. He was on the cover of that. Uh, I think we're all done with the American League East chats online. Yes. We're on to the American League Central. So we're going to talk a little American League East. This issue would also, we might touch on the Central. But and Central we've got next week. We'll right, be coming we'll really back dive with more full. into, absolutely. And then we'll also, our next, we'll also we'll have a bonus podcast, I believe, this weekend from Dallas with uh, Aaron Fitt and myself heading out to Dallas for the American Baseball Coaches Association Convention. We might even get special guest Dave Kylitz to finally come on the nice. podcast so we can uh, start doing Dave Kylitz impersonations thereafter so everyone will know what we're referencing. That, that, would, be, that would be useful. useful but, yeah, the college podcast will uh, maybe, you know, even now with more Dave Kylitz imitations. We might get more Dave, even more Dave Kylitz imitations, and that's hard to believe. But, uh, but J.J., American League East, obviously the – Biggest thing that sticks out about the American League East is you know, the Yankees, the World Champions, the Red Sox, with their success. You have four World Series championships from those two teams. I'm not even sure how many pennants. I think the Red, the Yankees lost a couple World Series in the decade as well as winning a couple. And you throw and the Rays team that also made the World Series. That's right. And the Rays won a World Series. This is the yes. This is the as they this would the call it World District. Cup. This is the uh, the group of death. This is the group of death. That's a, that's a great way to put it. It's it's the group of death. And yet, I feel so. I want to start talking maybe more about the have-nots as opposed to the Yankees and Red Sox. Out of those three organizations—Tampa, Baltimore, Toronto—how would you rank them in terms of hope for the future? 
Well, near uh, both near future and long term. You got to go Tampa first because you know we are talking about a team that a year ago was in the World Series. I think so too. I know they didn't make the playoffs this year, but that was kind of a. I think you could say that was a very natural drop off. They may have overachieved a little bit in right. you know, 2008, and so they kind of returned. You know, and also they were playing in a monster division, and the 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 economic limitations really hit them a little bit more this year. They did not make any, you know, big moves at the trade deadline. Right. No, you're right. And I think part of that is is they just don't have I mean, I can understand why they don't have the finances too. You know, they want to, you know, they went to the World Series, they want to pennant in 2008 and it wasn't something where they were turning people away at the uh, at the turnstiles in 2009. That's for sure. And I think the other thing is there's still a team, it's still a market. I think it's always going to be a market no matter how successful they are, where if they make a mistake on Pat Burrell, which they did, they had some money to spend, they went out and spent it on Pat Burrell, it didn't work out. The Red Sox or Yankees can just brush those mistakes away. Most of the big market teams, the Angels, and the Angels make a mistake on Gary Matthews Jr., they just spend to make up for that mistake. And the Mets make a lot of mistakes. They keep on trying to spend their way out of mistakes. The Rays just can't do that, so they're going to have to continue to be on that scouting and player development tip, which has served them well in recent years with some other really well, good trades you know, that have worked out very well for them. And the thing about it is, if you look at their top ten, they've got a fascinating situation. They have big league-ready starting pitchers who you can't find a spot for it's a, in the rotation. It's a good problem to have for yeah, them because they not have... Not many teams have that problem. And they had an extra guy. He's not nearly as high a ceiling. But Mitch Talbot is a guy who we've, we've seen here in Durham for the last three seasons. Many times. And they just traded him for a starting catcher in right. Kelly Shopik. I mean, granted, that was kind of a salary dump by the Indians, but Mitch but Talbot still. is a 25, 26-year-old, big league-ready starting pitcher who was like ninth or 10th on the depth chart for, right. for right. Tampa. I mean, and they have, I mean, if you, like, map out their, their, their starting rotation for this year, it really is. It's like, okay, well... Hellickson, if you even if you think maybe that Jeremy Hellickson's not ready right now, which I think there's a lot of argument that he is, but if right. he's not. But you could make the point that you know another hey, half okay, year no, won't kill right. him for sure. But by June or July, you sure would think that he's ready. You know, bar you know if everything goes right and barring injuries, which admittedly injuries often happen in pitching, but you know barring injury, it's hard to find really you know where he's going to fit in in the short term. Right. I mean, Wade Davis is. Penciled in as their number five starter, and, and the number six guys. Oh, by the way, Andy Simons. Oh, yeah, by the way, who? But doesn't have great stuff, but did win 14 games in the big leagues and pitched. But basically, uh, whether you want to, I saw a quote uh, or a, a comment online on a message board with all the hoo ha about the Hall of Fame going on that called uh, wins a bogus stat, which I think is just hilarious. Wins are not the best way to evaluate a pitcher. Right. That's clearly we know that now. I think we I think and, we've and, always and, known that. To and, be honest with you. No, well, not maybe. Maybe not. Maybe not. I would say if you went back actually pre, you know, to the 70s and all, I think it was thought of. Well, I think people actually probably back then might have thought ERA was a better way, and maybe that's not the, and that's not probably not the best way either. I think I think you depend so on who you talk to. By young and all, though, like Bob Welch was always going to win if he got because he had 27. I understand that 27 also is an out. I mean, who's won 27 in the last right. 35 years? That's a. So, yeah, it's a yeah big, but, but that was he. I'm not saying he was the best pitcher, but I understand why when someone goes out there enough right, to win 27 games, time, I understand though, why that someone's going to notice. Though, that. I think the argument was, oh, he was clearly the best pitcher. He, you know, he I, I, I can't go yeah. back in the time machine, so I don't want to argue the time machine. But I do. I, I think that the saying wins are a bogus stat misses the point that the point of baseball games is to win. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a pitcher's job; it's the team's job, though. So they think it's the stupidest thing ever to say that wins are a bogus stat. Wins aren't the best stat. 
I, I think we need to get our semantics a little bit right. more in tune uh, with, with reality. The rea- so Andy Sonnenstein winning 14 games two years ago is not the greatest indicator that, oh, he's a great pitcher. But he has proved he he's can proven. grind his way through a major league season in a big league rotation in the American League East. My point is I think Andy Sonnenstein's a very solid back-end starter that a lot of teams would kill for. Mm-hmm. And he's like sixth or seventh at best for Tampa, which is the reason why I agree with you. And not just those pitchers, but also Desmond Jennings is a guy that I, I'm enamored with and I think is a, an elite-level prospect. Proved that he could be a full season, go through a full season healthy. He's got all five tools. I think he's an impact guy for Tampa and, in and 2010 also, if yeah, they need him to be. Yeah, I mean, he's ready. You know, If they need him, he's, he's there and ready. Now the question again becomes... You know, well, is there going to be a, a spot for him to to kind of you know make an early impact? Well, there's no right fielder in Tampa right now. I mean, I guess right now it's basically him and, and Matt Joyce battling right. for that right field role. Uh, you know, I don't, and, I don't, like it is one of the things. Like if that happens, it's like how long before you say, okay, BJ, you, you know. That's that's the other big question is BJ Upton. I mean, he was pretty terrible in 2009. And at what point do you just get tired of these guys' shenanigans? Uh, a guy who just doesn't. Uh, who is tantalizing with his talent but doesn't come through on his talent. I think, uh, you know, Delman Young, his former teammate, is a great example of that. I think the Twins were finally, were getting pretty tired of Delman's tantalizing talent and not performing, and then he finally did perform toward the end of last year. Now, whether he'll maintain that or not is a very big question, I think a very legitimate question to ask. But I like Tampa's entire list. I think, uh, I think Reed Brignac would have been in the big leagues a year or two ago in a different organization. Uh, I think he'd be... A big league starter on a lot of other clubs because I think he's a, a short. I think he has a lot of value. He's their number five prospect. And Jake McGee. I know he's coming off of Tommy John, but as a number eight prospect, you know, by midseason, if he shows that he's back fully healthy and all, that's another guy you know who could be very helpful for them at some point before too long. Or it's a great trade chip. Absolutely, and we, you know, number six on the list is Tim Beckham, who was the number one overall pick in 2008. Was he the best prospect in 2008? No, but. I think they had to do it over. Would you maybe not pick him number one? Very possibly. I think there's a lot of. uh, I I still think he's a guy who's going to has a very good shot of being a big league regular. Whether it's at third base or in the outfield, you know, comes remains to be seen. Probably won't be shortstop, but I I do think he's he's pretty good. I think there's a pretty big gap though. I think there's a big gap between Tampa and, in my mind, Baltimore would be the next best farm system of these three we're talking about. I would actually say Baltimore is the next best farm system in the entire division, but Boston's. Baltimore and Boston are two very different organizations. Right. Ba- Baltimore, the thing that they have is is that, and Baltimore's farm system, you remember when we were talking about farm system, several of their guys who are elite-level guys don't qualify for the farm system anymore. We, right. we we saw several you know promotions to the big leagues. Yeah, Chris so, Tillman Chris is Tillman. the big, most notable, I yeah. guess. They, lo- they, you know, they lost the you know, Matt Wieters was, you know, I mean, he was, right. you know, he's, he just was a you know, he was the rookie last year. Right. Know, and, hey, Yes, it may not have been the, you know, the season to end all seasons and all, but at the same time, if you're an Orioles fan, still the the cornerstone around which you build. I do wonder who really expected him to have the season to end all seasons, as some projection systems yeah. had him having. I, but, I wonder you know, but, how many people actually thought that was right. possible. But you look at them and you say, okay, the Orioles in 2011, you can map out uh, if they. The key is is if they can have if they can develop a couple more. Or acquire a couple of more hitters, you could really see by 11 how things could start going in the right direction for them. I, I could actually see it coming just from internally. I believe I'm a Brandon Snyder believer myself, and I believe that not every player on the team has to fit the profile. 
And to me, if the Orioles are getting the kind of power they've been getting from center field, uh, that they've got, I know they don't get huge. Uh, well, the power they're going to get from Matt Weeders behind the plate, the fact that Brian Roberts is a good offensive second baseman. I think Josh Bell is the key. If Josh yeah. Bell comes through at third base oh, yeah, then all and gives you a power play at third base, I think it's fine if Brandon Snyder's a, a potentially a 290 to 310 hitting. If he's a Mark Gray, a right-handed hitting Mark Grace type, and ideally a number, you know, like the number two, a number hitter, six or hole number hitter type of guy. Because I think, yeah. uh, to me, uh, uh, two years from now, Orioles lineup of Brian Roberts, uh, probably Nick Markakis, Adam Jones, Matt Weeders, uh, Nolan Reimold, Brandon Snyder. You know, I'm even I'm leaving out Josh Bell. Josh Bell in the middle of that. Then you're talking about Snyder hitting sixth or seventh. You know, to me, and the biggest issue for them is a long-term shortstop. They still don't have one internally. Cesar Asturias, in my mind, is a great placeholder, a good defensive player, gives your pitchers confidence. I think the Orioles have the makings of a, a Rays-type revival, a Rays-type team. Right. They don't have the depth the Rays have, but they have the impact pitchers like Tampa. I love, I love Chris Tillman. you got to like Brian Mattis. Um, I, I like Brandon Irby. I like Jake Garriott. I like Zach Britton. You know, they have strength in numbers. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily ranked their guys exactly like Will did, uh, but Will's done their farms them for a long time now. And he was down to one organization this year because of all the books he had to edit, but he still held on to the Orioles like grim death. He's, I'm doing the Orioles top 30, which I think is just hilarious of all organizations to hold on to. But, but they, they finally have some hope. I would want to keep doing them while they're finally turning and, things around. And I like what they did last year in a way in that I like that – they got the first wave of pitching prospects up. That the first wave was the less elite guys. Right, Ferguson, Birkin. Uh, there's one other David guy, Hernandez. David Hernandez. You know those guys. They got them up, and the great thing about that is, is you can kind of sort through those guys and figure out, you know, okay, one of these guys may be better than you thought he was. One Bergeson. of these guys may be worse than you thought he was. Birkin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of these guys, hey, he's not going to be a starter for us long term. But you know what, David Hernandez may be a solid guy in our pen. I think. I think the thing is, I think they did find out that Bergeson and Birkin, I mean, Bergeson and Hernandez have a chance to be contributors when the team is a championship caliber team, are ready to contend. I think Bergeson's a perfect four slash five profile guy. I think Hernandez has a really good chance to be a very effective middle reliever. I think Birkin could be a long guy for him, but I think. When they're contending, and I also like, I think we both like the Kevin Millwood trade for them. Yeah. Just because they had to have a veteran stabilizer guy who can, uh, I don't like his chances of being great in the American League East. No. But this, 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 but, he's a pro. But 2010, yeah. you have him and Guthrie at the top end of the rotation to where you're not putting that much pressure on your Tillman Tillman, and Mattis. Your Mattises. And Bergeson. Right. I think he should, and the thing is, I think Millwood should make Guthrie better. Because in 07 and 08, Jeremy Guthrie was a, above, a slightly above average big league starter, a number three, four guy on a championship caliber team, and he had a masquerade as a one. I think it wore him down last year. I think he had way too much pressure on him all three of those years. Let's see if Jeremy Guthrie can come back and with with a with a Millwood helping him release some of those burdens from him being as a staff leader, if uh, that can make Jeremy Guthrie better. It's a Baseball America podcast with John and JJ. And and we're coming to you from the DeMarini right. Demo House podcast. That's right. And then we have an email to the DeMarini Demo House in, inbox, and it's from Brian, uh, who's a Red Sox fan. A good time as ever. Really, as little time as, as we can talking about the Blue Jays' top 30, probably I better. Say, I was going to – you know, you, you got to like at least – hey, they've done one thing right, which is 
they had they had to trade Halliday, and they traded him, and they got a solid package. For they him. got better prospects for Roy Halliday back than the Twins got back for Johan Santana. That's really not close. And I, it seems like they had you know a, a similarly. I guess they had a bigger pool of teams that were competing, and that helped them get a better return on the Roy Halladay right, but whatever it is, you know, that's like, I'll, I'll say this, it's that, you know, you, you look at an Alex Anthopoulos, the first couple of moves have, you know, he's he survived the first offseason, yep. and, and I mean by survived, like, he went into it with a difficult scenario, which is a guy that you need to trade, and everyone knows you need to trade, yep. and we saw in Johan Santana's case that sometimes... You could end up getting a lot less for that than you, you know, you think Absolutely. you would. Absolutely, and I, you know, six of their top ten prospects acquired in trades. And this is a lot about oh. how the Jays have drafted and developed of late. They have graduated a lot of prospects to the, to the big leagues, but I think we talked about that actually in the last podcast when we right. talked about the Halliday trade. So, uh, so Brian emailed us about the uh, about the Red Sox top ten. He actually did a two-parter. The Sox top ten appears to have a few players who people don't hesitate to rate as plus defenders, but the question lies in their bats. Raymond Fuentes, Jose Iglesias, Derek Gibson, and how well they develop. My question is, how did Tishuan Lin get left off this list? He's their best defensive outfielder and hitter, and, and hitter with the best strike zone discipline. He's put up decent numbers, age-appropriate. How's he below Fuentes, who has a little track record to speak of? Does Fuentes really have tools that are that much better than Lin's? That's part one of the question. I guess the answer is a resounding yes. Yeah. I mean, like, Fuentes' bat is just – I mean, the, the question with Lin is, is that Lin's bat is uh, a big question. I mean, I how much to. how much authority is he going to hit? You know, is he going to be a, you know, if you're if you're slugging you know three fifty three sixty in the minor leagues, yeah, you know it. Yeah, I mean, I've he's kind of a tweener. It sounds like offensively, you know, there's not a, there's not a big time. There's not a separator for him. Is he an on base guy? Is he a power guy? Is he a speed guy? He's like he's more he's of a, a little tweener. bit of, and he's a little bit of the last two. He's yeah. a, he's a little bit of an on base bat. But he's not a you know. As of yet, he's not a you know a guy who's going to hit you know get a 400 on base you know to lead off, but not right. bad. He's got good you know he has a good feel for the strike zone, and then he's a good runner. Now he's not Fuentes as a runner probably, but you know, but he's a good runner. But the scouting report that Jim Callis wrote on Raymond Fuentes also says polished bat, and I think that is a big difference. And I think that the Red Sox probably would not be drafting Raymond Fuentes with the back of the first round if it weren't for the fact that he has some of these other tools, some of these center field tools, and they saw some polish in the bat. A significant amount of polish that made them uh, be that aggressive about drafting Raymond Fuentes. Uh, so, you know, uh, obviously Jim felt pretty strongly. I don't think Derek Gibson also would be a guy who'd be thrown into the defense first pool. Right. If you want to say that for Iglesias, first. that's absolutely. I think that completely fits with Iglesias. Absolutely. And uh, I think Derek Gibson's more of an offensive guy, uh, you know, who's got probably a chance to move from shortstop to second base would be an offensive second baseman. The second part was he, uh, Michael Bowden comparing to Junichi Tozawa. Stuff seems awfully similar. They got off the list, seemed to have a better tra- track record. Did anyone really expect Tozawa to add that much velocity to his fastball? Uh, Brian, you know, the reports I got on the Eastern League on Junichi Tozawa, and if you look at the pitch effects uh, reports on him in the big leagues, his velocity is pretty good, actually, in the big leagues. It fell off in September in his first year in the United States that he wore down a little bit. I mean, that's almost to be expected. Especially considering the guy threw in 135 innings, first full season of the big leagues, I, I can kind of see why his velocity would go down a little bit. But you know, he's touching 94 miles an hour, 
pretty regularly during the year. Um, I specifically remember talking to Arnie Baylor, his manager, right before the Futures game. He had a truncated start because he was gonna. They thought he was gonna pitch in the Futures game, and he went five innings on like 70 pitches, and his last couple pitches were 93 and 94. And he's got secondary stuff. So he's he's got, I think, a better delivery than Bowden, who's always had this arm action that's troubled people. The arm action seems to be contributing to his diminished velocity. It sounds like Bowden's stuff went backwards in 2009. And, and Tazawa has a better breaking ball also. I think so. I think, well, I think Bowden's got yeah, – his secondary stuff is pretty good, but I think it definitely went but backwards it in it went backwards in 2009. If his – it, you know, if you know, if the curveball's back to what it was right. in two thousand seven, two thousand eight curveball, then maybe it's a different story. But and the, the the if you're a Red Sox fan, the problem is the Red Sox weren't able to sell high on Michael Bowden when his numbers in the minor leagues were quite good, and when he he was able to maintain average stuff. I think it was average. I think it was always average stuff with plus pitch ability and then deception that made everything play up. And now I think it's probably fringy stuff that maybe plays average because of the deception. I just think the guy didn't have a ton of margin for error in the first place, and I think the Red Sox kind of missed their chance. I'm sure they tried. It sounds like they definitely tried right. to. No, to although you know, with him, it's like it is. It's that that margin error that you know. Hey, if the arm bounces back just a little bit this year, then he's back to being the same prospect at least that he right. was in 2007, 2008. Well, fascinating tidbit that Jim had in the prospect handbook, which is off to the printers and uh, will be shipped out here in mid January, mid to late January. Uh, one of the most fascinating parts of the uh, of the book is when Jim was writing in the Red Sox top ten. I, I didn't go back and edit it into the Yankees, but it did make me go back and average out the Yankees guys. But uh, I, I don't remember the exact number, but the the average signing bonus for the Red Sox top ten players is a pretty outrageously high signing bonus. And it actually would be an instructive uh, thing for us to do. It would be a great blog post, actually, yeah. to go back and average up the top ten prospects in each top 30 in each organization, and here's their average signing bonus for those top ten players. Because for the Red Sox, it was in excess of $1.7 million, if I recall correctly. Which it was even higher for the Red Sox than it was for the Yankees. Now, a big reason for that, one of these guys, well, Iglesias, Jose Iglesias, received, I believe it was a $6 million bonus. If it's not, yes, it was a $6.25 million bonus, which is actually the largest in Red Sox history. It's of Casey Kelly and Ryan Westmoreland three of the top five bonuses in Red Sox history all in the top ten. So that helps contribute to it. The Yankees, you know, you do have the biggest contract in draft history in their top ten in Andrew Brackman. J.J., what was your reaction when you saw me rank Brackman ten in the Yankees? We, we've talked about Brackman in the office some. and This will be a great way to, to wrap it up. You know, and it is something where, I mean, yes, there are concerns about Brackman. I mean, hey. There are know. more concerns than there are non-concerns. Right. I mean, the, you know, the the fact is is that you have to think a little while back, you know, to think back to when Andrew Brackman had a year that at the end of that year you went, man, there, you know, he really did some stuff this year. That would have been 2005. That would be right. the time where I mean, you're, been, yeah. you know, you're thinking back to or, a younger time. Or you can think 2007 when he was in was it 2007 Hawaii. Hawaii Winter Baseball where his numbers weren't great in Hawaii, but he was pretty electric in Hawaii. Right. But, I mean, as far as actually having success on a mound, you have to go back to 2005. And that's, For consistent success, yeah. yes. And that's, you know, that you're basically going back to his freshman year of college. You are. And and that's a concern. I mean, hey, the, the, the number of guys who have, you know, admittedly there's a big injury in there. but Two. Two big injuries two, yeah. if you count the appendectomy. Because that kept them off right. the mound in 2008. But, 
when you have that long of a stretch, there's understandably some question of, hey, you know, is this guy ever going to figure out? Especially because there were times last year where his stuff was just not that good either. However, there were times in that same outings where it would be like, wow, that was really good. Yeah, that's that's the to me the big question with Andrew Brackman is why do the Yankees give him so much money? I mean, I think the only answer to that could be that they legitimately thought they were buying him out of an NBA career. In that case, the ACC basketball fan in me says, ha, you know, ha, this guy was not an NBA player. But he is 6'11", and he is fairly mobile. Uh, personally, I think the Yankees have overestimated his athleticism. Um, I think they think he was a, he's a special athlete. And to me, he's more like on the Jeff Neiman athleticism line. And he's got to be a lot more a lot he's got to be a lot stronger. To me Jeff Neiman is so strong. Right. But you're he talking powers his way through his You're delivery. basically saying he's a slow twitch guy. Yeah, I am. I mean, he's but not maybe he's a medium twitch guy. He's not but he's not a fast twitch. Cuz Jeff athlete. Neiman's a slow twitch guy. Right. This guy's not an athlete. This guy's not an athlete like he's not he's athletic maybe for a baseball player, but he's not a basketball athlete like I mean, I don't know who's a basketball player. I mean, like even Austin Jackson. I think they over overestimated Austin Jackson's athleticism a little bit. If you want to talk, Deshaun Jackson was, you know, I mean, like that was a okay. This right. was a premium like athlete. Calvin Johnson, yeah. who was also a big time yeah. baseball prospect. This guy's not that level of athleticism. He's just not. And I think that's why and he never has was. These, I mean, that's I think that's why he has these issues of repeating his delivery and repeating his velocity and being. You know, 88 one inning, and then within the same inning, being 95, and there's no difference really in the, di- there's no really discernible difference in his effort or necessarily what he's doing. So I, I think Andrew Brackman has significant issues. I also think he does still have significant upside. I don't think that can be ignored. And I think it's also, A, breaking him 10 is a sign of the Yankees consider him one of their top 10 prospects. That's for sure. B, I do think there are organizations that are going to have a hard time finding 10 better prospects for the Yankees. In terms of ceiling, D.J. Mitchell's a good comp. D.J. Mitchell's a guy who's six feet tall, is a sinker baller, and did have success in his first full pro season this year, much more success than Andrew Brackman had. But he gets killed by left-handers, D.J. Mitchell, and even his advocates in the Yankees organization are promoting this guy as a Ramiro Mendoza-type middle reliever. Not even the guys outside the organization I talked to or inside the organization are talking up D.J. Mitchell as a future starter. He's going to exceed expectations to be a big league fourth or fifth starter. I'll take the ceiling of a guy like Brackman, where the Yankees really do believe that he can be a frontline starting pitcher with two knockout pitches. Do I think he's going to do that? Not necessarily. I think he's got about a 20% chance to do that, maybe 10% chance. I do think he could be an impact relief pitcher down the line. That's where I see his role being. And I think that would be, even then, if it's a closer I think he has more impact than a guy like a DJ Mitchell. That's why he ranked tenth for me. And and the thing about it is, is that one thing that you have to allow for is that when you talk about a guy who's six eleven, it does take a lot of times. It takes longer. Absolutely. I mean, it it's something where doesn't mean it ever is going to. It took longer for Neiman. But the light bulb it can take a little longer to come on because the reality of it is, is I mean, it, you know, it sounds like cliche, but scouts talk about it. and It's true. If you're a six foot guy, it's a whole lot easier to be in control of your mechanics than if you're 6'11", because... Just have body awareness. Yeah, body control yep. is much tougher for a 6'11 guy. I mean, that's why you don't, you know, that's why there aren't a whole lot of 6'11 six, you know, six guys. I mean, when you see a guy who has some athleticism, right. it stands out. That's right. why a guy like, you know, Brackman gets the money that, you know, is because it's, 
there's a reason that most NBA, you know, seven foot centers, you know, there's a lot of stiff seven foot centers That's because right. it's hard to not be stiff if you're seven foot. Yeah, NBA wise, basketball wise, I wonder what Andrew Brackman's ceiling would be. That would be a great uh, conversation to have with Marty Blake sometime. Where do they have well, Andrew, Bra- Andrew Brackman slotted in in the NBA? And, and it's something where you you do have to with the money when it comes to the two sport guys. You you don't throw it out, but it is a whole different story because yeah, just like Jeff Samarja. Because the reality of it is, is that, look, they don't deserve it. I and, mean, like, if you, on a pure baseball terms, no. Correct. They don't deserve this much money. But because there's leverage, then all of a sudden that changes everything. And the reality is, is that there's probably, I mean, if you look at it, yeah, there's a lot of money that's been wasted on guys because they're two sports stars. jumps to mind. You know. For sure. But, but the reality of it is, is that you want, you, you spend that money because all, every now and then you get that one guy. You get Matt Holiday. You get Matt Holiday. Every you once get, in a while you get, get Desmond Holiday. Jennings. But, but I mean, Holiday's a guy who they had to buy if there were slots. He would have gotten a, definitely a buff slot bonus in 1998 when he first signed. And three years later, they had to give him more money to stay away from Oklahoma State. I think it's also funny that you look at the Yankees list. The 2002 top pick, Brandon Whedon, another two-sport guy. They bought him out of football. When he failed in baseball, he went back to football. And he played some, got some time at quarterback this year at Oklahoma State. So, I mean, like, the Yankees are very, very well-practiced in two-sport. Whether you're talking about John Elway 30 years ago. You're talking about Brandon Whedon six years ago, or uh, uh, Drew Henson, or you're talking about uh, Austin Jackson, who, or C.J. Henry, the 2005 first rounder, who's now playing basketball at Kansas. And that's the thing is, is that the danger also to sport guys is, is baseball is the hardest sport right. to be good at right away. Like, you know, the reality of it is, is that if you're a two sports star and you choose baseball, you're probably going to have some point during the next couple of years where you're going to think back and go, you know. If I was playing football, if I was playing basketball, I would be doing this, and it would be in front of a much bigger crowd and right. probably with more success. And the other, the other part of this uh, Yankees discussion, and I do think, like I said before, I think Brackman's inclusion is a sign of the weakness of the Yankees farm system, and it got weaker in their hot Vasquez trade where they lost essentially two top ten guys because without Arroyos Vizcaino, who was number three, uh, Mike Dunn would have moved into the top ten. And then he's traded as well, and I honestly could not remember from the prospect handbook who the next two guys were in that Yankees list. I believe Corbin Joseph was one of them. I believe that uh, I honestly, I really, I can't, can't even you, remember who the other guy you was. You did the top ten, and you don't remember. I'm I not cannot even remember. remember who the other guy is. Uh, I'm actually going to go on the prospect handbook uh, file and and find it before we and sign off. No, I we'll, we'll have that for you in we'll the. We'll have uh, it next time. We'll I cannot. I can't remember. I, I honestly, for the life of me, cannot remember who their other guy would have been, but that's going to have to be a, in a future SBA. Send those in to Jim Callis at SBA at BaseballAmerica.com. Again, for the podcast, you can send those emails to us at podcast at BaseballAmerica.com. So for JJ, I'm John, and uh, again, we came to you from the DeMarini Demo House podcast nook. And when it comes to buying a baseball bat, DeMarini just changed the game. Introducing Demo House, where you can step into the cage and hit the latest from DeMarini before you buy, because there's no substitute for hitting a real baseball or talking to people who know both bats and batting. Your demo time in the cage is free. Get the start, season started right. Visit your nearest demo house today. Locations and full details can be found at demarini.com backslash demo house. For JJ, I'm John. We'll see you next time on the Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.